listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief, because all children leave footprints on our hearts. Good morning and welcome to episode 28 of Footprints on Our Hearts. Today I've got an interview with Alexa, whose daughter Beatrice was stillborn in April this year at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic and lockdown in the UK. I'm really grateful to Alexa for reaching out to me and offering to share Beatrice's story and her experiences on the podcast, particularly given how recent Beatrice's death is. I know that there are quite a few of you listening to this podcast who have lost a baby over the past few months or perhaps earlier this year who, you know, have experienced not just the trauma and devastation of losing your child, but also the the added um, difficulties which have come around doing this at the height of a global pandemic when there are lots of restrictions and uncertainties and those kind of mechanisms of support which might normally be available to you haven't. So I'm really grateful to Alexa and I hope that um, you find this chat with her useful and can relate to her experience. Before we get into the interview, I just wanted to mention some new guidance which has come out this week, which I think is amazing and you know definitely needed. Um, so the official title is Consensus Guidelines on the Communication of Unexpected News via Ultrasound. And what it includes is advice for sonographers on how to approach communicating uncertainties and bad news to parents, um, including examples of phrases they could use. And I think, you know, for for I think pretty much every parent who has either been told that their baby has died or um, or has have perhaps been told that that their baby has a life limiting condition or some other condition or unexpected news about the baby's development. The, the first person you come into contact with who tells you about that is a sonographer. And obviously you know, no bad news can never be covered up. But the reaction and the response and the compassion given by that person who is giving you that news can make a huge difference to your difference to your experience of care um, and the support that you feel has been provided through that. Um, I think my, you know, my own experience in terms of, I guess, how um how news has been given to me during scans has has probably been more on the positive side. Um, but I know I've spoken to a lot of people who have had very different experiences, um, you know, had been left in silence while the sonographer rushes out of the room, being able to see that something is wrong on the sonographer's face, but them not really communicating that or, you know, perhaps using the wrong language, which, which, can actually be very hurtful and make a a bad situation worse so I've had a read through the guidance and it is it's not sort of aimed at parents it is aimed obviously at sonographers um but there were some really positive things I think in there which I wanted to kind of draw out in terms of what the advice covers 
And I think running through all of it is the importance of compassion, tone of voice, and body language. And I think that, you know, I think that we'd all appreciate that it's a really difficult situation to be in where, you know, you have parents come into the room who are perhaps excited, you know, anticipating um, good news and just be able to see their baby on the screen. And then you have to deliver some unexpected or bad news to them. Or equally, you may have parents come in who are expecting that bad news um, and that requires a different approach. And certainly, I think for people who've been through pregnancy after loss, you know, going to any scan (laughs) is a really difficult and can be quite a traumatic um, process, particularly if you're going to the scan of the same gestation as when you were told about a problem in the previous, in your previous pregnancy. So I think that that compassion can overcome a lot of things. I think, you know, people do sometimes say the wrong things, even even medical professionals. Um, but if, you know, if you are being a kind person and you're trying to be as empathetic and compassionate as possible, then that really does come across. Um, and I think linked to that, using the words, I'm sorry, you know, that's such a powerful phrase if you're kind of community, communicating baby loss, um, but equally perhaps not using that in other situations because I don't know about anyone else, but I think as soon as someone now says, you know, a medical professional says, I'm sorry, and my mind immediately jumps to, you know, the worst case situation. And of course, you know, unexpected news uh, when you're having a scan isn't necessarily always bad news. Um, you know, unexpected news could be that you're expecting twins, which you might be over the moon about. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's, it is a difficult one. Um, another thing which I thought was really good was emphasizing the importance of involving partners and speaking to both parents and not just the pregnant woman and I think honestly I think that can go for pretty much every you know every appointment you have you know during pregnancy or pregnancy after loss or whatever your situation you know I think there is definitely a tendency to talk to the woman who is carrying the baby um rather than perhaps involving both parents. Um, Another thing was around minimising the length of time before telling expectant parents what you found, particularly if you can't find a heartbeat. And I think this is really uh, to avoid that, that dreaded silence which seems to go on for too long and it it is difficult because obviously they need sonographers need to concentrate so the silence might not be an indicator of of bad news but when it when it keeps going and they haven't said anything and you can see and again this links into the body language you can see the face changing um then you know generally it you you need to get that bad news out of the way um, a very important one, which I think we would all agree with, is using the term baby rather than fetus at any stage of pregnancy, um, even you know very early on in pregnancy, um, and where the baby's died, acknowledging that they've lost a baby. And I think that's really important because, you know, as soon as you see that pro- uh, positive pregnancy test, that little line on the stick, you know, 
it's your baby. You have a baby inside you. It may not look exactly like a baby at, you know, four weeks or five weeks or six weeks or eight weeks, um, but it's still your baby. Um, there was something around, well, quite a lot around being very clear and explaining findings in lay terms, but also using and explaining technical terms and importantly, giving to these to parents in writing. And I think this is really important because let's face it, the first things a lot of us will do when you get home after, you know, if something's come upon a scan or you've been told some news, the first thing you do probably on the way home, actually, on your phone, is hit Google and search for those terms or search for for more information about what you've been told. And what you find might not always be accurate or relevant for your situation. So I think kind of giving those technical terms is important so you know what you're looking for, but also kind of explaining those, particularly if you're in shock, someone's in shock. So you know, they're quite clear on what it means for their baby. Another very important one is avoiding positive reframing. So for example, if the sonographer finds out that and has to communicate that perhaps one twin or one baby in a a set of triplets has died, not commenting on the fact that the other twin is alive as good news. And, you know, I think I talked quite a bit about this in my conversation chat with Katie um, in the in the No Words episode um, about how family and friends talk to people after um, after baby loss. But the same is goes for, you know, medical professionals, sonographers, doctors, etc. Um, you know, it's just as important or more important to, um, you know, to recognize the fact that, you know, the fact that one baby is still alive does not make up for the fact that the other one has died. And one thing that, you know, really kind of uh, stuck me personally was around offering practical information, explaining clearly what next steps are, signposting to helpful organizations. And actually, they specifically mention that um, expectant or parents who um, uh, have suffered a stillbirth should be told to expect passive movement after a stillbirth. And I think of, for me, that's quite a personal thing because I think that that was the gap in terms of, you know, what what we had or the information we didn't have following um, Sky's death. You know, I wasn't told, I wasn't aware that I would still feel my baby moving. And I had still felt my baby moving kind of in the womb and that 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 was normal. And that can be quite a shock, you know, when you've when you've been told your baby's dead and then you can feel them moving, it it leads you to question that um, that diagnosis. And also, you know, we weren't really given much clear information about what the next steps were. I think I had to ask, you know, what happens next and then got quite a blase response of well you know you have to give birth to your baby <laughs> and and I know that seems obvious to you know the doctors and sonographers or whoever is involved but you know when you're in shock um that you know the obvious isn't always obvious and I think the final thing which I thought was was quite important was not necessarily letting the the sort of diagnosis or the news completely take over the scan. So, for example, if the parents want to find out the gender, still talking about that. And this is this is perhaps more relevant if you're if they're communicating um, 
as you know something which isn't perhaps as serious as um you know a terminal diagnosis or or baby loss um but i think even you know even in that situation you know you can ask parents if they would like to see their baby on a monitor, if they want a photo of the baby. And it also suggests that actually, even if they, you know, if they don't want to take a picture home with them, then that you print that the sonographer prints want to put on file. And I think, you know, going back again to a lot of conversations I've had on the podcast, actually what you want at the time and what you want when you're looking back are often two quite different things and having that opportunity to perhaps go back and say oh yes I you know I, I really want to see see that scan photo and see my baby um, even though you feel like you can't face it at, at the time is is really important so I think there is lots of good stuff in in that guidance and I hope it will be rolled out um, to sort of hospitals and maternity departments across the country and and put into place and help improve uh, the experience for you know all the parents who get dealt this devastating news every day across the country and I'll include a link to the guidance in the show notes if anyone would like to read it. Okay, I've gone on for long enough. So let's get into the interview. I hope you enjoy this conversation um, with Alexa. And if you have lost a baby recently, I'm very sorry for your loss. And I really hope that you can relate to some aspects of her experience. Today I'm joined on the podcast by Alexa, whose daughter Beatrice was stillborn just a few months ago in April 2020 at the height of the coronavirus lockdown in the UK. Thank you so much for coming onto the show to share your experience, Alexa. And would you like to start by introducing yourself and your family? Um, sure. So my name's Alexa. Um, I live in Bristol with my husband and my two-year-old son, Rory. And Beatrice was your second child. What was your experience of pregnancy and birth with Wari? Was that fairly straightforward or did you have any problems? Um, it was very straightforward um, and we were very lucky. We got pregnant much quicker than we thought we would. Um, we did hypnobirthing, so we used those techniques um, for his um, birth. And he was quite early. He was at 37 weeks um, plus three. And it was very quick. Literally, I woke up on Sunday morning um, and things had started. And then we got into hospital and they I had to wait a little bit because they said, oh, someone else is giving birth. But she's had three kids and it came out, they came out really quickly. And then when they got me in, they were like, well, you could just pad around here for an hour. We could examine you. And Joe said, I think you should examine her. And they were like, oh, you're already six centimetres. Let's start running the bath because I wanted a water birth, that, that didn't happen. Um, because I said to Joe, oh, go and get the bags, because he hadn't bothered. And by the time he came back, sort of 15 minutes later, they're like, she's having the baby. Um, and the hypnobirthing really worked because um, there wasn't time for any painkillers. I literally had paracetamol and that was it. Um, so it was a really positive experience, although right at the end, there they, they couldn't find his heartbeat and there was meconium in the water. So they did press the emergency button 
all the doctors came in. I was oblivious to this because I was hypnobirthing and in the zone. Um, but Joe tells me later, but as soon as he, so they did an episiotomy, so he'd come out quickly. Um, and as soon as he came out, he was fine. They handed him back to me. So I'd had a really positive experience with the, my first birth and pregnancy. And I guess you were hoping for a similar experience second time around then. And how did your first part of your pregnancy go? Sort of look up that while the world was normal, shall we say, how how did that go with Beatrice? Um, I, did, I was actually quite sick with Beatrice. So I didn't actually enjoy the first trimester. Um, and also I eventually went to the doctor um, and she said, oh, you know, second time around, you've got a toddler to look after. There's no, she was, she said, there's no floating about in maxi dresses in cafes. Second time around. I was like, certainly not. And um, so I actually got some medicine, medication for the sickness. Um, and when we found out it was a daughter and when people, and we were really, really happy, you know, we were glad we wanted to, you know, to have a daughter as well. And when people would say, Oh, do you know what you're having? I say, yeah, girl. And they'd say, Oh, one of each. And I, and now when I'm being unkind to myself, I think I was so smug because I'd say, yep, I'm done. I'm not doing this again. Um, and when I'm being kinder to myself, I think I was just really content and happy. Um, so yeah, the first trimester wasn't great, but you know, kind of got over that was lucky some people have sickness the whole time um and yeah it just was progressing normally going to the appointments and so the UK looking back now it's gosh it's it's been like months and it's kind of gone in a flash and also seems like it's been forever but the UK officially went into lockdown in March but there was lots sort of leading up to that about COVID-19 on the news particularly around the situation in Italy around kind of February time how many weeks along were you then and how were you feeling in that time, I guess, leading up to the sort of official lockdown about this sort of potential pandemic and being pregnant during that? So we actually went to we went on holiday when I was 30 weeks or 31 weeks, which was at the very beginning of March, because we thought it was our only chance, of, like as a family of three kind of thing so and we even then we were kind of thinking oh will our flight get cancelled should we go and we just thought yeah let's just do it and it feels like it happened you know we'd we'd heard rumblings of it where I work we have an office in China and stuff so it was impacting that um and I don't know I'm quite an anxious person and I was trying to think it'll be fine I'm just being anxious it'll be fine um our work was preparing for people to work from home. So they were saying to everyone, take your laptop home every evening. Um, And then the day they announced that pregnant women were in a vulnerable group, I basically cleared my desk and I took my laptop home. And I then spoke to my manager the next day and I said, I would like to work from home. I know officially we don't have to or anything. Um, and Joe did the same. He went into work and picked up, my husband went into work and picked up a um, laptop, a, a screen and everything because we, I was on a pregnancy yoga WhatsApp. So I was doing pregnancy yoga and they had a WhatsApp group and there were kind of stories going around about um, someone had symptoms and she was told not to go in for her scan. And, you know, there was kind of thoughts that if, 
your partner had symptoms, then they wouldn't be able to come with you. So we just thought, let's just be precautious, self-isolate now so that in the run-up, the birth would just be that we had the best chance of having both of us there, et cetera. So we kind of were a bit proactive. And then a week later, and we took our son out of nursery as well, which was tough. But then a week later, that happened anyway. And at that point, I can't, I can't remember what the exact guidance was, but were they saying at that point that if you're in the third trimester, you have to be particularly careful? Or was it just that sort of general? Because, because at the beginning, it was this general message of, we basically, we don't know if it affects pregnant women or not. So we're kind of, you're in this vulnerable category as a precaution, but we have no evidence. And then it got a little bit more refined over time. What was the situation at that point? Yeah, it was basically, they said we were, that pregnant women were vulnerable, but they were, they were being quite positive. Like all the evidence was it, it didn't, um, there wasn't vertical transmission. So children, were, babies weren't being born with it. And it was, I, I was saying, I'm not worried about us getting it in a way because we're not, we're young and fit and everything, but it was more around the care we would get given if we did have symptoms. So the fact that someone was, and it was when they didn't have testing. So there was quite a long conversation in our, the WhatsApp group about this woman who had symptoms and they were saying, don't come in. And I was saying, this makes me so angry because they don't know whether you've got it or not but they're not willing to test you or they didn't have the capacity to test you. So they're impacting your care without actually knowing if you've got it. So it was more about trying to protect us to make sure we didn't have it more nearer for the actual birth. Cause by this point, I think I was 33 weeks or something. So I wasn't expecting to give birth yet, but I just thought, well, if we, get it before that's good and we can be recovered hopefully I mean it's turning out to be quite a really nasty virus that seems to be having long-term effects I think now I've realized it's quite blasé like oh I forget it's fine but obviously it's not um but it was more impacting the care we'd get and also the birthing experience that was what we were concerned about mm-hmm. and what was your experience then of those kind of final final month or so of pregnancy during lockdown so I guess you've got are you trying to work at home both of you at this point you've got Rory at home from nursery so this whole kind of um, storm that parents have been struggling with during the pandemic of you know trying to well homeschool or childcare and working and sort of in line with that and in line with the concerns about your care what what was the message you were getting from your kind of midwife and care providers during that time sorry that's two questions (laughs) okay so um yeah we were both working I only worked three days a week so that was better but equally I was heavily pregnant and I was knackered and luckily my employer is very very understanding my direct manager has got two young children of her own and what was stressing me as well is that my husband was getting stressed that he couldn't do the work he needed to do because he was having to share childcare with me and that was impacting me. So I basically um, said to my manager, I can't do my full hours. If you want to put me on part-time, that's fine. Um, But I just can't work in the day, look after Rory and then work in the evening. I'm just too exhausted. It's just not going to happen. And and she was very good. She said, I understand. Don't worry, because you've only got a few weeks till you go on maternity leave anyway. 
but it was knackering, you know, at the best of times. And people that are still in that situation or were for months, I just, I I feel like everyone at the moment is suffering in some way. The lockdown had a wide, a very wide impact um, on everyone, really. Even if you don't have children and you're on your own, that still, I think, has a massive impact too. So yeah, that was, that was tough. Um, And it meant as well, I wasn't really concentrating on the pregnancy because we had so much other stuff going on. We were worried about catching COVID, worried about trying to get on because we weren't going out. So I was worried about trying to get online deliveries. I'd be up at midnight because that's when the slots would come out. So then I was knackered because of that. Um, And, but the, the advice was attend, still go to your appointments unless you have symptoms. Um, And we've got some GPs that live a few doors down and they were, they were saying, Alexa, just if anything, if there's anything, just go in. Doesn't matter, just go in. And now I really wish I'd, you know, I, of course I listened to them and I did go in eventually, but, you know, now I realise what, because I was thinking, oh, it's fine, it's fine, you know. Um, now I sort of really realise that was sage advice. Um, so we uh, we actually, Rory had a temperature, but, you know, kids pick up everything at nursery and we both had a cough. So we actually missed our 34 week appointment. We just did it via phone. Um, and we talked about the birth plan then. Um, it was with the midwife I'd had the whole way through and Joe, it was the first time Joe was there cause we were doing it via a, a call and he really didn't warm to her. He felt like he did, she didn't know what was going on. Cause we were asking about what was happening at the, um, maternity like at the hospital and because we were going to the hospital where we'd had Rory but we'd moved house so it wasn't necessarily in her area anymore and she was really like well I don't I don't know I don't know what they're doing at St Michael's we're in the South Mead area so he he found that really frustrating but we were looking at the um, Royal College of Obstetrics um, website and that was giving guidance and it was just basically saying go to your appointments it's really important um, but of course, because we had symptoms, we did we did miss one. So I didn't have my blood pressure taken then or a urine sample. So that's one of the things my mind goes back to a what if. And I guess at the time, were you kind of concerned about that? And obviously, because they measure your bump as well and just check that everything's kind of looking OK. Did you have any concerns about that at the time or is it just obviously that that beauty that is hindsight looking back yeah no I had no concerns at all I'd been measuring fine um she hadn't said anything about my blood pressure my urine had all been fine the whole time so as the doctor said it was a boringly normal low risk I'd had a child before pregnancy um so that's why I didn't force going in at 34 weeks um I went in at 36 weeks and it was, it felt quite paranoid there. Like you had to ring before going in, sanitize your hands, which we're all getting used to now. But when I went in, the um, midwife had full PPE on. And I do wonder whether they were just sort of trying to push people through. I don't know. So I went to my, so I finished work on Monday, Thursday, so the day before Good Friday, that was my last day at work. And it was also my 36 week midwife appointment. So I went to that and she 
um, I'd forgotten to do a urine sample at home. So I did one there and she was like, hmm, there's protein in your urine. Um, have you, have you got a headache? And I said, well, yeah, but I think I'm dehydrated and seriously stressed with working and looking after a child and I'm not sleeping as well. Um, and she said, have you had any visual disturbances? I said, no, I didn't tell her that my feet were swollen because I just thought that's what happened. And there was actually a chat in the WhatsApp group, someone saying, oh, my feet are really swollen. I was like, yeah, me too. And it was quite hot as well. So I just thought, oh, just hot. So she said, oh, well, I'll send off the urine next week because it's bank holiday. And I, I said, well, shouldn't you do it sooner? And she said, oh, yeah, I can get a I can get a colleague tomorrow to send it off. And I was like, okay, okay, fine. You know, she doesn't seem worried. Fine. And I did say as well, she said, oh, is she still, move- the baby's still moving. I said, well, she's moving a bit less, but I think she's just um, bigger and probably engaged. And because I was, by that point, I was 36 weeks and three days or something. And Rory had come at 37. So we were quite aware that she could come anytime. And she kind of said, oh, but she's moving as much. She'll she'll move differently, but she's moving as much. And I just sort of said, oh, yeah, I just, you know, thought I'm being paranoid. It's, you know, sometimes they have quiet days. It's no big deal. Um, So, yeah, finished that, finished work. Didn't finish work till about 11 that night because I was trying to desperately send emails, get stuff finished off, et cetera. Um, And so, yeah, that was a bit strange. And I even bumped into our neighbor that's a GP there because it's at the same doctor's surgery and he said oh you're here for 36 and I was like yeah didn't make it to the 38 last time probably won't make it to the 38 week again this time ha 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 um and yeah went home finished work and then we had a really nice Easter weekend um just relaxing as a family enjoying the fact that we weren't trying to look after him and work um and then on the Easter Monday, my husband decided that he was going to work that day because he wanted to get stuff finished off in case she came early. So all day I was looking after Rory, which was fine, but exhausting. Um, and then I, I went to bed quite late. I can't remember why. I think I was just sort of doing laundry, you know, basically nesting. Um and when I went to bed, I, I remember thinking, oh, I haven't really felt her move, but I've been really busy today. Maybe I'll just, I'm sure it's fine. Um, and then I woke up at three to go to the loo, <laughs> as you do. And um, she, I still couldn't feel her moving. So I sort of drank a pint of water and then... I went back upstairs and I, I said to Joe, because Joe woke up, he's like, are you okay? And I said, well, I don't know if I'm being paranoid, but I, I'm just not sure. So he said, well, just phone the, the delivery, central delivery suite because that's what they tell you to do. So I phoned in and the midwife was very nice. She said, drink a litre of water and put a cold pack on your stomach for half an hour and then call us back. Um, so I did that and I still didn't feel anything. And she was like, okay, well, just come in just to check, you know. Um, so I went back upstairs and I said to Joe, well, they said to come in, so I'm going to go in. And I'd already packed my hospital bag because after the 34-week appointment on the phone and we'd been going through the the um, 
birth preferences, I was quite thinking, right, I need to start nesting now. I need to actually get organized. Um, so I drove myself and he stayed at home because of um, our son. And we'd luckily just the week before we'd been saying, we'd been talking to our friend who was going to kind of come when, when it happened. And she was like, okay, I'll keep my phone off airplane mode and all of that. Yeah. So I drove in and I felt fine, you know, pack myself a piece of banana bread to take with me and all of this. And I went in and it was, there was a security guard at the door asked me to put a mask on and everything. So that was a bit strange. And I came in and um, the midwife was joking with me about my bag and stuff like that. And then she took me um, to a, it was just like curtained off, but I don't think anyone else was in there. And she tried to listen with the cone, first of all. And she's like, I can't really hear. And then she tried to listen with the Doppler. Um, and she's like, I can't really hear, but I think I, I think I saw movement. I'm just going to get the doctor. And I was completely oblivious at this point. And I was like, it's not my muscles moving. So it must be the baby because, you know. They're so reassuring, aren't they? It's like, I don't know that that's kind of their job because it's not their job to break that news even if they know um it's not their job but it's still it does make you still I mean I know I was still kind of even though I kind of was getting I was anxious very anxious and I thought oh maybe something you know something is wrong I still didn't really believe it I don't think at that point you know because you know, they bustle off. And I do sometimes wonder if they kind of bustle off behind the curtain and then go, and just like the blood drains from their face or something just when they're, you know, away from you and they realise actually what what is coming next because they've seen it before and and that kind of thing. And I guess the midwives and all the staff must have been masked up and have all the sort of precautions in place, which must have felt slightly slightly bizarre compared to your experience for example when you've been in with Rory that type of thing yeah and and they were wearing masks and like I said I I felt fine at that time like I I thought it was fine I said oh I'm just going to text my husband to let him know she said oh oh, no don't don't do that yet don't worry him which as well gave me more reassurance and I said well I'm just going to let him know that I've arrived and that I'm going to have a scan because I just wanted him to not worry that I hadn't got there or whatever and then the doctor came with the scanner and he was scanning. And I remember he looked, he looked at me straight in the eye behind the mark. I could just see his eyes. And he said, I'm sorry, there's no heartbeat. And I just felt like my world imploded. I just couldn't believe what he was saying. And I I know people, I've heard on this, people that out scream or they, they disassociate. I, I kind of was with it, but I just kept saying, no, 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 no. Um, and the midwife put her arm around me, which I think she's not meant to, but she was just like, it's okay. It's okay. Um, and then, so then I followed, I, I, I called Joe. I said, I need to call my husband. So I called Joe straight away and he picked up and I, I just said, there's no heartbeat. You need to come in. I had to tell him I couldn't say, just come in. And then, um, and our neighbor had said, if you need to, we're, we're a backup. And I said, I'll, I'll phone Amy, our friend. So Joe, bless him, was knocking on their door and trying to phone them. They didn't wake up. So our friend lives very close. And she, as soon as she came, he just got in the car and went. And actually, 
his brakes were broken on his car, but he just was like, I just need to get there. Um, Cause we were supposed to get it fixed just before lockdown. And then it got canceled. He was just like, I just need to come. It's not, you know, an option to not drive. Um, so he was in hospital with me by five. So I'd woken up at three and it was like, so it'd been a couple of hours by the time I'd got myself to hospital and everything. Um, and then they took us to, I don't, I don't remember if they must've taken me there before Joe arrived. And then he came in and he kind of had to explain to the security guard why he was there and, <laughs> and things. Um, so it was a, it was another room. So with Rory, I'd had him at the midwife led unit. So this, but this was a central delivery suite, but one of the rooms there has a, an ensuite and a, a birthing pool and everything. So they took me to that one. And it's a bit further away from everything else. And yeah, they, it was just, yeah, shocking, really. I just couldn't, I think we were in shock. I don't think I believed it, really. Um, Did they tell you then what was going to happen next or you know what did they just leave you for a bit of time just to kind of process things what like what order things happened in because it's quite a blur I remember they changed shifts so we got introduced to the two we were looked after by two midwives um and they said to us that we could go home and they'd give us some tablets and then come back and we discussed it and we agreed that we wanted to do that because we wanted to see Rory because obviously my friend had come at five in the morning and then when Rory woke up we weren't there um and they said about whether we wanted there was some sort of um test of the amniotic fluids and we said we did want that so that happened. I can't remember what order it happened in, but I do remember the doctor that had told me it happened. So this must have been quite early because he must have changed his shift. They must have changed shift at seven. And I remember apologizing to him for ruining his shift. And he's like, you really don't need to apologize. But I just thought, you don't want this. Um, and I remember him saying, well, we're going to have to, you're going to have to have the baby. And I said, yeah, of course. And he said, well, some people ask for a cesarean. And I knew that a cesarean is major abdominal surgery and I wouldn't be able to pick up Rory for six weeks. And I think as well, I was lucky that I'd ha I had given birth before. I knew I could and it had been quite a positive experience. So I was like, yeah, we, you know, she has to come out somehow. So that's how it's going to have to be. Um, so, yeah, we felt, I kind of felt that that was all going fine. And, and then during that time, I think, the doctor came in to do the the procedure with the amniotic fluid where they basically put a, a needle into your um, uterus and take some amniotic fluid out. Um, and as part of that, she did a scan. So Joe was there for that and she said, I'm sorry, but I'm going to confirm there's no heartbeat. And Joe said to me since then that that is when it really hit him because he wasn't there for the first scan. And he kind of was hoping that They'd made a mistake and they were going to say, oh, no, it's, you know. And he said that's when it really hit him. Um, and then they said, oh, we're going to cut. The doctors are doing their rounds in the morning and then they're going to come and talk to you. And they took blood 
And they kept they kept asking, I was looking through my notes and they kept asking for a urine sample and I kept peeing and not giving it to them. So like, I peed at home already. And then they're like, oh, she's already gone. Um, did you, and did you mention to them or did it cross your mind at any point to mention that you'd had the urine sample, you know, the week before and that it, they'd found a bit of protein in there? No, because she'd already said, because when she took the sample, she said, oh, it could just be a UTI or some um, discharge is what she said. She like made me feel like it was not a problem at all. So I, you know, and they had my notes. I'd taken my maternity notes. Um, But anyway, eventually when the doctor came round, it kind of all seemed to change. And she was like, we need to deliver the baby straight away you've got preeclampsia um so you can't go home anymore and in a way that was good because it just meant the decision was out of our hands um so we were like oh okay okay fair enough and looking at my notes now so my blood pressure had been higher the last two appointments I'd had but because my base blood pressure was only like um 90 over 60 or something quite low wasn't deemed to be hypertension so it was still kind of within the normal range but it was high for you which yeah I guess perhaps should have been picked up exactly well I don't know I mean who knows the the review coming up um in a couple of weeks and just to skip basically when they first told me that she died I was really, really accepting and philosophical about it initially. I was just like, it's happened. There's nothing we can do. They could have picked something up at the 36 weeks and I could have gone to the hospital. They would have measured her. She would have been fine. And then still something could have happened. And some of the stories you've you've had on your podcast kind of bear that out. Um, but I went to the doctor for my six week postnatal six to eight week postnatal checkup and they booked it in for a when there was a baby clinic on unfortunately that was the only time they could do a blood test and the doctor available but in the waiting room I saw a lady from the yoga pregnancy yoga group with her daughter and I'd just left the the whatsapp group because I just thought I can't bear seeing all these babies being born like because everyone was sharing pictures and you know um and I said oh hi I recognize you were you in Viv's yoga class and she said yeah yeah I was um and I said oh I'm sorry I left the group but my daughter was still born she was like oh right yeah oh you probably didn't want all the sympathy on the group and I was like yeah um I said well I had preeclampsia she said I did too and I was like oh right and I said well I mean, I didn't have high blood pressure. I just had protein in my urine. She was like, yeah, I did too. I didn't have high blood pressure, but they did loads of tests. And so they induced me at 36 weeks. And I just, I just thought, what are you? Because she was with the same midwife service. She had a different midwife. And of course, I don't know what her circumstances were, whether she was higher risk because it was her first baby or she had other factors. But when I went into the GP, I just burst into tears and I said, I can't believe this. So because of that, we've specifically asked why the preeclampsia wasn't picked up. It wasn't picked up until I'd arrived at hospital. My baby had already died. Um, And equally, even if it had been picked up 
the outcome could have still been the same. But I do think if it had been picked, because it wasn't like there was nothing going on, I did have preeclampsia and I would have been induced. And you'd had that, you know, you did have the headaches. And I guess, you know, if she'd have asked you, have you had any swelling in your ankles, you would have said, no. well, yeah. Even though, and it's perfectly natural because the trouble is all these symptoms are things that you you kind of get pregnancy anyway because your, your pregnancy list of third trimester symptoms is about as long as your arm and and you know and it's mostly harmless all of them are mostly harmless but then there's these occasions and yeah and I guess particularly when you have that you know that protein in the urine that perhaps should have triggered her to ask some more questions or even to you know specifically mention for you to be aware of you know the condition and and what the sort of symptoms were well I mean she did because she said you didn't have preeclampsia with your first child did you and I said no and I didn't as far as I know I wasn't diagnosed he was quite small but he was quite early so you know I just there's too many there's too many unknowns and it's I sway like like I said I was really sort of accepting of it to begin with and then I've been asking a lot more and then sometimes I'm like it's not helpful to think that way because I can't go back and change it um but yeah so that will be interesting because we've asked very specifically why the preeclampsia wasn't picked up um and it was I mean he's the doctor described it as acute preeclampsia so it came on really quickly I'm still not sure whether it was severe or not because my blood pressure, when I went in, I think it was 138 over 80 or something, which is still not 140 over 90 or whatever it needs to be to be deemed um, really risky. But, and I didn't have fitting or anything, so I didn't get as far as eclampsia. But the when they the, so the reason they discovered it was because my blood test came back and the ALT level which I'm not sure what it stands for, but it's to do with your liver function, was 1,000 and something, and it should be about 40. So it was... Yeah, that, that's a difference. <laughs> it affected my liver and kidney function. Um, and also part of the treatment I got once they'd established that and said, right, we've got to deliver the baby because that's the only way to cure preeclampsia, was they gave me the magnesium sulfate infusion, which I've read up since is when they've got a severe case. So I don't know if they did that as a precaution because the baby was had died anyway, and it's just to make sure I was safe. Um, but that was the most, I think, the most horrendous procedure that I had to have. It was just, so I, I can't remember how many minutes, initially they just flood you with it basically. And that was excruciating because they said, oh, it might just feel a bit hot, but it just felt so un- unbearable. It was unbearable all through my body. It was horrible, but it was obviously needed. Um, so, yeah, that it, it must have been severe enough that they felt that that was needed. So did they then go, so so going back to the hospital, so you're in the back of the hospital and you were you were hoping to go home to be able to see Rory before coming back in, presumably to be induced. But now we've got this kind of medical emergency. You know, you've got preeclampsia. There's all these things going on. You're staying home. You're not going to be able to go home to Rory. Did they want to then go ahead with an induction or was it a a sort of emergency C-section case? What was the plan then? And were you kind of kept informed with that? Yeah, so it was um, an induction, which was fine because 
I, I remember the um, anaesthetist came in to talk about an epidural and I, I think I was just a bit confused and out of it by that point because I remember saying to him why would I I don't understand why would I need one he was like well in case well I was saying I, I didn't have one before I don't think I want one they're like well it'd be easier to have it now if you need it and I was saying why would I need it and he was like well if you start bleeding and we need to do surgery and I we didn't go for it in the end because I was like I won't I won't be able to move will I and I just but yeah so it was an induction rather than an emergency c-section so it was I think because they'd given the magnesium sulfate that's to stop the fitting and so they felt that that was probably enough and then they could go ahead with the induction but I don't think I had because initially they said we'd take you'd get some tablets and then wait for things to start etc so they I think they just skipped that and at 12 noon so after they'd given me the magnesium sulfate infusion and they'd done the amniotic fluid test and everything they broke my waters and started the synthetic oxytocin drip um and when they broke the, the waters there was marconium in the waters again and I got really upset because I just thought she's been distressed and that really upset me but the midwife said no no it's it's you know, she didn't suffer and it did it that reassured me at the time that's what I needed to hear um but yeah that that did upset me um and then the contraction started and we said to her last time it was really quick um and she was like they're not close enough together because I was saying do you think you should examine me she was like they're not close enough together they're not close enough together she's like and then I think at time was it at three o'clock they started it was like established labor and I was like do you think you should examine me she was like no we'll examine you in four in four hours time and I was like okay anyway they progressed and then I was like the pain is different now the pain is different and I got I I did have more I had more pain relief this time than I did with Rory so I had gas and air which was amazing and I had um the liquid painkiller I'm not sure what it is but and then right towards the end I was like I need something else and they gave me some tablets they're like Alexa you're so nearly there you're so nearly there I said I don't you could give me chalk pills right now I don't care I just need something it's psychological so they did give me um give me some smarties <laughs> the magic pills it's like exactly you can do whatever I don't care I just need something so yeah she was delivered by five thirty. um so there was no episiotomy this time because I said i in a way, I was quite glad I had a episiotomy last time because a tear can be really, really awful. And they were like, well, we only really do that if it's for the baby's sake and that's not the issue here. And they, But they said, but don't worry, we'll make sure we'll make sure it's all fine. Um, so she was delivered and they were like, do you want to do skin to skin? I said, yes, I do. And, you know, she just looked still pink because she and she was still warm. It's um, obviously she still had the umbilical cord and everything. Um, and then while I was having stitches, Joe held her. Um, and so I delivered the placenta and that was fine. And then I was having stitches. So Joe held her. And then, um, they said, Oh, do you, do you want us to put a nappy on her or something? And I, I just said, no, why? No, you don't, you don't need, I just didn't understand why they would. 
um, and they took some photos of us. Or I asked them to take some photos because I didn't know that we could see her again or anything. And I look back at those photos and we just, we look like a truck has hit us. I haven't shared them with anyone, but I'm glad we have them because you can just see how, uh, just the shock. And I'm just, I'm glad we can see how we were at that time. Although it's quite distressing to look at. Um, but yeah, so she was delivered at five and at seven, I said to the midwife, oh, you're going to examine me now. <laughs> like kind of joking <laughs> two hours later. Did they talk with you about kind of any kind of men- memory making or that type of thing? Because I know, for example, you know, one of the things that a lot of people have is the Remember My Baby service who are now not coming into hospitals and and other things like that, which I think haven't been going on. What What was your hospital's approach to that? So they have a they had a memory box that was um, and they said, oh, do you want. So when they changed shift, the the midwife that came on later said, oh, do you want um, handprints and footprints? And I said, yes, if possible, can I have three sets? Because I want some for the the grandparents. So there was that. And then in there we went through, there was like lots of stuff we didn't really want necessarily but the handprints definitely and she said I'm going to take some photos some more photos so we weren't invited to do that and I think I don't know if they asked if I wanted to bathe her but I think as well I was quite unwell still at that point so after that they were monitoring me every hour for my blood pressure and I could only drink I think it was 15 mil an hour because there was five mil going in no, it can't have been an hour. I don't know. It was, I was just thirsty. I was so thirsty and it was excruciating. So there was kind of, I think it didn't hit me then because I was just concentrating on, right, okay, this is what we need to do. Um, so Joe left at probably about nine by the time the doctors had come back and all of that. Um, and I stayed in the hospital. Um, and as I say, the midwife was checking me every hour. Um, and then the next day, it must have been the next day, the, the midwife that had taken my handprints, because also they said, do you want to have a shower? I was like, I just can't. I'm just so exhausted. And I just, because I've been up since three. She came and she said, I could only get two sets of prints because um, the skin on her hand was sort of, was really delicate. And she said, and also the midwife put her in a really rough towel. I don't know why from the night before. So I was like, why would she tell you that? I don't know. I don't know. So I was a bit like, okay, um, fair enough. Um, but it was fine because we got two sets and I, I, I was like, yeah, that, that's that's not an issue. Oh, and they, uh, yeah. And they said, do you want a lock of her hair? And we were like, no, we don't want that. Um, and then in the morning, I went and had a shower and I was like, oh my God, no wonder they said, do you want to have a shower? Because it was just, I guess, but I was just so exhausted. So I got up and had a shower and um, then Joe came in later. So he'd been allowed to go home, come back in and kind of yeah, go, come and go as he, as he needed to. Yeah. And also we told, as soon as we knew, that was something else we did before all the treatment and everything is I phoned my sister and FaceTimed her and said, and she was like, hey, because it was like seven in the morning. She said, are you is everything okay and I just had to say no it's not and she just couldn't believe it and I phoned her first because 
I wanted her to call my mum as soon as I'd spoken to my mum because my mum was on her own. Um, so then I phoned my mum and then they spoke to each other and then Joe phoned his mum via um, FaceTime. Um, but yeah, so he was allowed to, and our friend just came back and looked after Rory the next day because, you know, there was nothing else to be done really. Yeah. Um, and then it was just, um, so I was in Wednesday we saw we saw her again and we had some more pictures taken with her um and they just continued to monitor my blood pressure and take my bloods etc and so the levels my function was going in the right direction but it still wasn't normal and they thought they were going to keep me in until friday and they were going to move me to a gynecology ward rather than the maternity ward um but on thursday they said i yeah. The consultant said, I reckon I can sneak you out today. And initially I was like, I don't want, I don't want to go because I was kind of in a bubble. And also I was thinking, don't, don't discharge me early. What if something happens to me? I think my view of risk had just, you know, I just thought what could, you know, it happened so quickly. Um, but then I thought about it and Joe was like, I think you, it'd be really nice for you to see Rory. It's so lovely to see him and cuddle him. Um, and on Thursday, in the morning, Joe stayed at home because my sister came up from London to help out. So he was waiting for her to arrive. And I'd spoken to him and I said, I, I really want to see Beatrice again. Do you want to? Do you want me to wait? And he said, I don't. And he basically told me it was just too painful for him to see her. Whereas for me, it was just so nice. And I... Because the reason I said I wanted to see her is because we used the SANS app and one of the sections was ideas for photos and we hadn't taken any photos of her hands because she'd been just wrapped up. And I was like, I really want to have a picture of her hands. I said to the midwife and she was really lovely. I said, before you bring her, can you just tell me, because I know they can deteriorate, what condition? She was like, no, she looks fine. Don't worry. She looks very pink. Um, So... I had some more pictures taken and I, and then she left me on my own with her for a bit. And I just held her. And I just thought I could just hold her forever. Just don't want to let go. Yeah. And I just, the weight for her felt really nice. And that's something else as well. I'm glad I saw her again because that midwife, they'd measured her at 2.4 kilos, um, which is under five pounds. And the midwife looked at her and said, that's not a five pound baby. So they re-measured her and she was actually 2.8 kilos. So she was heavier than Rory when he was born. Um, and when I, I saw the doctor again, who I'd, who'd initially given me the news and it was a bit, I was really apprehensive about seeing him because it kind of took me back to that moment. But he said, oh, you know, I think she was very small. She was only 2.4 kilos. And I said, no. She was 2.8. They measured They measured her wrong. And he was like, oh, okay. And I'm really glad that midwife took the trouble to question it because they could have come, they could come to a very different conclusion had they thought she was only 2.4 kilos. Yeah, I mean, I just, it's so difficult because I don't know why they would get that wrong. Yeah, it, it does seem odd, but I don't know. I think sometimes we do think medical staff are infallible and, you know, Maybe they just, you know, what they saw wasn't what was there or they wrote down something, you know, they had something else on their mind or other figures. It's, uh, there's just so many ways it could happen. So, 
Yeah, so you you did have to leave Beatrice and and go home. And there's this whole pandemic thing going on, but you know you've got your own kind of yeah, your own world has been kind of rocked and changed. And I guess one of the one of the big impacts of the lockdown was no visitors in hospital and even actually no visitors uh, at home. So I guess, you know, you said your sister came up, but your parents and Joe's parents, no one came to meet me at the hospital or they weren't even able to give you a hug or anything after after all you'd been through. I guess that must have been really hard both for you and for them. Yeah, and I think I'm so, so grateful for my sister and that was amazing having her to help because I wasn't very well and just helping out on the practical side, but also being there emotionally. Um, And I think it has been really, really hard for my mum and Joe's mum because they're both over 70. And so it kind of wasn't not worth the risk, but we wanted to look after them too. So, and I think it was been really, especially for my mum because she was a nursery teacher all her life and she's so close with Rory she's basically a professional grandmother (laughs) she just was she's just she just wants to be here to help us and also like you say not seeing them not seeing B because you can see pictures but it's not the same and actually the day before the funeral my sister came back for the funeral so she kind of went back to London and came back a couple of times and she came back for the funeral and she um was kind of pushing for us to to go and see Beatrice at the funeral home, which I hadn't even thought about because it was just down the road. And she was like, "Do you want me to? Do you want me to come with you?" She kept saying, and I said, "Do you want to come?" And she did. And I think she really wanted to see her as well. And I'm really glad she did as well because it meant someone else saw her in person and makes her more real. Um, so that that is nice that she was able to do that. Um, the funeral was very small, just five of us, myself, Joe, we really wanted Rory to come, even though he probably doesn't really, he didn't understand what was happening. My sister and her boyfriend. Um, and we say we're going to have a memorial later, which I hope we do do. But I feel like everyone that's lost someone during this period has said we'll have a memorial later. And I don't know how they're going to do it capacity wise. (laughs) And although we weren't allowed visitors, we one of my really close friends lives nearby and she came around and she just said can I give you a hug <laughs> and I said yeah you can. I mean there were you know there was strict lockdown and there were exceptions like for example you know you couldn't leave Rory on his own when you were in hospital so yeah. someone had to come and look after him I mean that's you know you know it's it's all a balance of risk isn't it I think as we all know there are exceptions Um, yes mentioning no political moment (laughs) and I also thought if anyone if if this had stopped my sister they would have had to have the heart of stone to say no you can't come to um also our neighbors have been amazing Uh, we're really lucky that it's a really friendly street and so that's been good because it's just someone else to talk to um and we received a lot of cards and flowers and everything and there was one it's funny there's one from um someone joe works with who he's not he's not in the same team or anything but he drove from cardiff and this guy knocked on the door who i didn't know 
and he was like, oh, oh, sorry, I work with Joe. I've just brought, and he, they basically had made Welsh cakes, which Rory loved <laughs> and also written a really heartfelt card. And it, just one little thing in it, he said, um, just know that Beatrice will be part of your family now and going forward. And it just kind of hadn't occurred to me that that would be the case. Uh, did you feel that kind of that lockdown bubble affected your grief and how how did that work and also did your kind of attitude to lockdown and the pandemic change after her death compared to before um I think definitely the bubble so the they even said in the hospital you're gonna kind of have a bit of a like a bubble around your family bubble which in a way is quite good because you can just be together and process it together and I do think that was that was really good that we were just with Rory, Joe, my sister and her boyfriend sometimes. And it was really lovely. Um, but I do think that it has probably delayed things, but maybe that's okay. Um, so for example, bless her, one neighbor who I'd not met yet, but we had a street WhatsApp group and I knew she had a two-year-old and had just had a baby and we were walking past her house and she was going, she was going in and basically I thought, I'll just say hello because our children are the same age. I said, oh, hi, are you Florence? And she was like, yeah. And I said, oh, I'm Alexa from number 17. And she was like, oh, you've just had a baby. And I said, yes, but unfortunately she was still born. I just burst into tears and I said, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. She was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I went home and I texted her straight away and I said, I'm really, really sorry. I wasn't expecting that reaction because I just hadn't had to tell anyone yet. And I've been bumping into people more now and having to explain, you know, they're like, oh, it's the baby and everything. Um, but in a way, it's easier because there's more time. So in that way, it has, I think it's been good in some, it's a positive. But equally, because we've just been in this weird reality where everything seems to be on pause. And also, we Rory only went back to nursery last week. So I feel like I've just been sort of surviving and looking, concentrating on him, which has been great. And there's nothing like a toddler to keep you going and get you out of bed in the morning. But last week I felt quite sad and I think it's because I'd had time to actually sit with it. But I don't think that's a bad thing either because you can't just go straight to being fine. I think I need to go through that and process it because otherwise you're just holding it back for, for it'll come out eventually. Yeah. And I think, you know, everyone's, I think everyone's experience of grief and kind of grief journey, I guess, is different anyway, let alone the fact that, you know, yours has been during this global pandemic. Um, And I guess, I, I mean, I, you know, I don't have experience of having, you know, a toddler at home and having to grieve. And I can see how that could be a distraction. I know, for example, other people, who have had their toddler in nursery or, you know, so they've kind of, I guess they've had that separate time to think about their baby and, and grieve and, and, and just to, yeah, go through all those things. Whereas for you, it must have been, you know, quite full on for that period. And you don't know, I guess, you know, it might hit you further down the line unexpectedly. Sometimes things just catch you out of the blue. Um, and it's still really early days for you as well, I guess, just a few months after her death yeah I think so and yeah I I think we've been going to the SANS meetings but on Zoom so we've only been to two or dialed into two 
But I think being on Zoom, it makes it quite intense. I think if you were to go actually to the hall, there'd be small talk around the coffee and things. Whereas this is just straight in. And I have found it helpful. I think part of why I found your podcast helpful and that is helpful is hearing other people's stories, realizing you're not alone, understanding it happens to other people. So you still get all that benefit, definitely. Um, but it's more the the like human interaction, the subtlety, the sort of It's a personal contact, isn't it? And I think I think, you know, however many Zoom calls and stuff you have, you know, it doesn't replace being face to face with someone and, you know, being able to focus on their face and see their reactions or have them touch your arm or you know, pass them a tissue or, you know, share a cup of tea or cake or whatever. You know, it's the same with talking to family. You know, it's wonderful to talk to family through the internet, but it's not the same as having a hug and, and sort of talking to them face yeah. to face. And I think mm. it's it's um, the not hugging thing is getting to me. So I saw my friend on, a friend on Monday and I said to her, are you up for a hug? She said, yes. <laughs> and I just was like, I just... I just needed that. And I've seen my mum once on my own and once with Rory. And it was so lovely to see her with Rory and for them to be together. But it's caused my sister's real anxiety. So I don't know if I'll do it again because she she understands. She said, I understand why you did it, but please just don't do it again because it's, you know, it's not worth it if something and if something happened to my mum I would feel awful just so awful and I think as well as you were saying if how it affected your view on the pandemic for me it it made me just not be able to gauge risk because the doctor said oh your pregnancy was low risk but unfortunately low risk doesn't mean no risk and so I was thinking yeah I mean it's low risk we haven't really been seeing anyone. If Rory sees my mum, it's still, it's low risk, but that doesn't mean it can't happen. So it's made it quite difficult for me to judge, to trust my, to trust my judgment, I guess. Because I thought everything was fine. And, oh, you know, the midwife said it was fine, was low risk. And then the worst thing happened. Um, and I think I said to you, Joe was almost the opposite. He thought, he said, the worst thing that could have happened already happened. Our baby died. So I just don't care about the pandemic anymore. I mean, he still adhered to social distancing. He didn't go crazy, but he was just like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter anymore. The worst has happened. Um, so, yeah, I guess everyone reacts differently. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting, actually. And I think, I mean, I totally get that kind of, it just comes out of the blues, like everything is normal. One day everything is normal and the next day, you know, your world has ended and it just happened and you had no, you know, indication that, that this was going to happen, no warning. And, yeah, I think it definitely does affect your your judgment of risk and, you know, it makes you more paranoid. But I, I almost think paranoid is the wrong word because you, you have justification for feeling like that because – you have experience and that's how we learn and that's what we use to to judge risk a massive part of judging risk is your own experience and you've you know you've experienced this uh the worst can happen even when people say it's not going to (laughs) happen and I think going forward from that it's it's 
really sort of difficult to, to carry on with that. Um, we are about out of time, unfortunately, but I just wanted to finish by asking you about, so I know there are quite a few people who listen to this podcast whose babies have died during the pandemic and the lockdown period. And is there any advice or message or anything you'd like to say to them? I don't know. That is a really big question. I think you just need to take care of yourself um, and find the support, however it may be. Don't, I just think it's not about the rules. It's about the risk. So if you think, think you need something and you think you're comfortable with the risk, I think just, just do it because I guess they say it's about that balance of mental health. Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I'm still working my way through it. Yeah. And that's why I appreciate listening to what other people are saying. Um, and I'm so grateful for you for, you know, be brave and agree to come on the podcast and share your story because I do think, you know, I try and share a lot of experiences, but this, this whole experience of baby loss during a pandemic is a really unique experience in itself. And I do hope, and I'm sure there are listeners who, you know, have listened to your story and, you know, even within all these baby loss stories, you know, they feel like their experience has been slightly different because of what's been going on in this outside world. And, and hopefully, um, I think that will be really, really useful for them. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing Beatrice's story. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Footprints on Our Hearts. Please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts and Twitter at Sky's Footprints. For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website, footprintsonourhearts.com. <laughs>